Hi, friend. Welcome to a special 2018 Christmas Eve episode of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. Today, we're going to talk about my upcoming guests now that 2019 is right around the corner. I'm your Sally Pal podcast host, Sally Adams. I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Send an email to sally at sallypal.com. Although I've been away from podcasting for a few months, I am still out here supporting new works wherever I see the opportunity. As 2018 draws to a close, I wanted to share some of my thoughts before I kick into twice-a-month podcast uploads again. After producing over 50 episodes of Sally Pal, I took a break from podcasting. It was supposed to only last a month and make time for some other projects, but I got out of the habit of regularly editing and posting, and after a few more weeks, I was almost embarrassed to start again. It's like that feeling you get when you forget to send a baby gift, and then two years later, you figure it's probably too late to send the onesie you were maybe going to buy. But enough about me and my nieces. Let me start by letting you know about the guests I have coming up in the next few months. In January, we have Chris O'Rourke. He's a playwright, director, drama coach, and a critic. He was a national theater critic for Examiner.com until 2016 when the publication stopped publishing. And during that time, he reviewed in Ireland and actually all over the world. He is the artistic director of Everything is Liminal and Unknown Theater. And Unknown Theater is the one that specializes in originating works with young people from high-risk backgrounds. It's really cool, and we're going to talk a lot about that. I also have Amber Harrington from Tulsa, Oklahoma. She teaches there at the Magnet School, Edison High School. And she has about 18 years experience. I looked it up on her resume. It's like she's at 17 and a half years right now. And she's been named Teacher of the Year. She's won all these awards. Her students have won a ton of awards. And she's created programs for her theater kids that are imitated throughout the state. Her student playwriting program is the first of its kind in Oklahoma and has produced two national award-winning playwrights. Amber is also a Folger Shakespeare teaching artist. I also have, coming up, Reed Mathis, who's making fresh music in the Bay Area of California. Reed tours with his own band and also works as a studio musician, blending his love of classical music, Beethoven in particular, with his spectacular bass playing skills. Reed's a former member of Tea Leaf Green and has played with Grateful Dead members Phil Lesh, Mickey Hart, Bill Kreutzmann, and he also played with the Steve Kimmock Band and was a founding member of Tulsa Progressive Jazz Band, Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey. Yep, another Tulsa native. Finally, I want you to stick close because I have an interview promised with J.D. McPherson, who has a brand new Christmas album out. He's a Fender guitar spokesman. He's a major league world touring rockabilly artist. He's fantastic. And he is going to give us an interview as soon as his touring schedule lets up a little bit in the new year. So look forward to that. Big news in public domain works and what it means for creatives. If you're not sure exactly what the term public domain means, according to Google's online dictionary, Public domain is the state of belonging or being available to the public as a whole and therefore not subject to copyright. This is a pretty big deal for creatives in general, but especially for artists and arts teachers. Many of you remember being admonished by your choir teacher or your drama director to get rid of your photocopies after a performance because the works were copyrighted and you did not have permission to keep those copies. In just a few days, 
That will no longer be true for works published in 1923. Works published in 1922 and before have been available for 20 years, or more, actually. I know this because in 2013 I wrote a musical for my students that borrowed songs from 1922 and earlier, including the well-known Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. A recent article in the Smithsonian Magazine highlights a lot of the things that are important to artists regarding works in the public domain. According to the article, which I'll link in the blog along with a couple of other bits relating to copyright and public domain, on January 1st, 2019, all works first published in the United States in 1923 will enter the public domain. Because of a weird discrepancy with the law, it's been 20 years since there's been any mass release of work into the public domain. The last time it happened was 1998, and Google didn't even incorporate as a company until September of that year. That means the explosive growth of digital art hasn't legally included variations on work from this period, in part because works published in 1923 haven't been in the public domain. Some of the work has been available, of course, without alteration through publishers and for a price. 1998 was the year that public domain releases stopped because the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act added 20 years to the wait time for published works to enter the public domain. The bill was named for Congressman Bono posthumously, although he did put his signature on the legislation. It's complicated, just like copyright law, so I've included some deep dive links for anyone who needs more. And don't get me started on global copyright, it's a hot mess. Next week, though, you'll have total and free access to things like Robert Frost's Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, which, although written in 1922, was not published until 1923. The laws for these earlier works is different from works in the digital age. Nowadays, a work has a copyright as soon as it's created. I'm not kidding when I say this stuff is ridiculously complicated. I'll include a link to a great Brad Templeton website on copyright, plagiarism, and some other topics you might find interesting. Other things entering the public domain? Well, how about the unforgettable pop hit, Yes, we have no bananas, we have no bananas today, or the songs, Who's sorry now? And the flapper hit, The Charleston, The Charleston, ba -ba -da -da -da. The film debuts of Marlena Dietrich, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and Fay Ray will be available for general public use. There won't be any Disney fare available until 2024. At the time the law changed, Mickey Mouse's film debut, Steamboat Willie, would have been public domain in 2004, but the Disney Corporation lobbied to retain the rights to its creations over two decades into the next century. They didn't have to lobby all that hard, as both the House and Senate had corporate-leaning Republican majorities, and President Clinton wasn't looking to make public domain law a part of his platform. The 1998 law gave Steamboat Willie an extra 20 years before he would steer into uncopyrighted waters. What's really exciting now is that digital collections like Internet Archive, Google Books, and Half I Trust, the links are in the blog, will be storing seminal works from the early days of American modernism. D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, Claude McKay, Sigmund Freud, George Bernard Shaw, Louis Armstrong, Gertrude Stein, and so many others. Members of the Harlem Renaissance, the Dadaist School, and the Algonquin Roundtable all feature prominently in 1923. This new surge of old works in the digital age allows for current creatives to freely play with the works of important artists of the era bridging World War II and the Great Depression. 
Works entering the public domain can be altered indiscriminately. You could even claim PD work as your own, but that's not art. That's plagiarism. As artists, we are always standing on the shoulders of giants. Give attribution whenever you can, and do your homework. Look at the context for works that you use. Collaborating with ghosts expands our artistic horizons. It's an exciting way to learn from our predecessors. Teachers will be free to share these works with their students, and scholars can print important poems and essays many of us have never read. It's only one year, but I think you'll find that 1923 was a very good year indeed. Okay, I have one more thing to tell you about. You might have noticed that I have a shop link on my site that is devoid of any products. The Sally Pal Shopee is opening, but I have to learn how to operate it first. So stay on the lookout for the Sally Pal Shopee. I'll have t-shirts. Oh, that was my dog sneezing. I'll have t-shirts, coffee mugs, all the usual fun, high quality performing arts kits at decent prices. If you don't see anything in the store yet, stay tuned. Okay. You've heard from my son, Will Inman, before, and he's back! Yay! To talk about the new release of 1923 published works into the public domain. Also, plagiarism, sharing your work, educational theater, and whatever we want to talk about. Will's plays have been produced in theaters from Texas to New York. He is currently a Cadence Pipeline New Works Fellow with Cadence Theater in Richmond, Virginia. He's been a featured student playwright with the VSA Kennedy Center Plays, been performed with Tulsa Summer Stage and Fringe Festivals, Ritopia Labs Comedy Playwriting Festival, uh, also Houston University, Roger State University, and a portion of his play, The Lesbian Exhibit, was performed at Torrent Theater in New York City. And last year, he won the inaugural Edward Albee Playwriting Award by Teresa Rebeck for his play, Winners. <laughs> was a very good year. Mm -hmm. uh, you're a playwright, and you have a, some interest in music, of course, but you're not really into visual art, so I don't know that you know a lot about the Dada. No, I was looking at the list of visual uh, art that has been released. I didn't know any of it. So. <laughs> Maybe we should call your boyfriend and see if he can tell us something yeah. about it. But you do have some knowledge of the theater, and there were some things on there that are kind of interesting mm -hmm. for their impact on the theater. Yeah, A play that uh, you admitted not to have read yet because it's very hard to find. It's been out of print. Um, is the Adding Machine, and that's a play that was published in 1923. I believe it was one of the first expressionist plays. Yeah, it it was an expressionist play, and it yeah. it came out of that modernist movement. There was so much going on. Okay, you have World War One. I. I wish George was in here. He could probably tell us more about the historical background of that. But the men coming back from the war, and women too, because there were women involved in World War One, and the women on the home front, there was so much despair, I think, yeah. coming out of that war. So many deaths, disfigurements, all this sort of stuff that was coming. And people were actually seeing the effects of war for the first time in moving pictures because they would show the newsreels in theaters and people could actually see images that were very disturbing. And a lot of the artist's reaction to that was to move into something very different. I don't know if you could say it was fantastic as reactionary or evolutionary. Well, it was, um, <clears throat> I think it was reactionary because that was an epistemological break, World War I. And an epistem is just a time in history. 
and an epistemological break is, is a time when something changes just in our perception of the world, and that was after World War One when we realized we could have a war like that. And so the reaction was to artists were seeing the absurdity of everything, and uh, were, were sort of disillusioned with humanity in general, and so the art became a lot more searching. Expressionism and theory came to the stage for the first time ever with Machinal and the Adding Machine. I, I believe it was after World War One. It might have been after World War Two, but I believe it was after World War One when uh, absurdism and existentialism, like with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre or Samuel Beckett, was coming to the forefront. Because uh, if you read Beckett, especially Endgame, I think I think less so Wedding Burger Doe, because Endgame is bleaker, uh, which was just sort of a play that was dramatizing um, people sort of waiting for life to be over, which is what you do. You know, from a certain perspective, that's how you, that's an easy way to, to summarize life is just waiting for death. And that's what people were feeling, I guess. Well, and interestingly, we were coming out of the Victorian era, which probably had a greater impact in Europe than it did in the United States. But sexuality became a topic for artists. Mm. And that's pretty interesting because at the same time we have Sigmund Freud and some of his works are being released in 2019 which is case studies, essentially. But his case studies read like literature. So I think we'll see a lot of what people were beginning to express had to do with expressing sexuality. Mm -hmm. And in addition to this despair of the outcome of the war and the imbalance of world power and all of the things that were going on, there was also a newfound open-mindedness regarding expressing your sexuality. Yeah. This is a sidebar. I think it was a realism, which actually was what came to the forefront. That was the time of Ibsen, I believe. I think I actually might have been wrong earlier. I think absurdism and stuff was after World War II. I think realism was after World War I because of the invention of photography and the popularization of psychology. Because psychology wasn't a thing before then. People didn't know about it, really. Um, and then it started to become a popular topic. So because of that, people started writing plays that... Uh, got into the secret motivations of people because the idea of the subconscious was um, being discussed for the first time ever. And that combined with photography, which allowed us for the first time to be able to capture what something actually really looked like, that led to things like a doll's house, where on stage it looks like an actual house that people are living in, and they don't say how they feel, and we're supposed to figure it out based on the subtext. And that was a direct result of psychology and photography. But here's what's so interesting about that. At the same time that's happening, you mm. have artists going the, off the other direction. And I bet photography probably has an impact there as yeah. well. Because they, the, doing realistic art that looks like a photograph is far less interesting once the photograph actually exists. Right. So right. now you see people drawing things flying in the air. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll look up some things and give you some links so you can do some comparison. But you can do some comparison yourself. If you just go online and Google 1923 visual art, you're going to find a ton of things that tell you a lot about where artists were in, in their minds yeah. during this time. It's also the time of uh, the Algonquin Roundtable. You have Virginia Woolf who was an openly, I don't want to say lesbian, because I think she was bisexual. I would argue that it would be pansexual, but she didn't have the vocabulary for it back okay, then. Okay, okay. So you have her coming out and being very open about you know, her sexuality. Mm -hmm. and um, Very supportive husband. Also. And then you have uh, the Harlem Renaissance, right. where you have all of these African-American artists, novelists, um, poets, 
and uh, and musicians. You, know, yeah. you had so much excitement going on in New York and in Chicago and other big cities as well. There's just a lot going on. Of course, we all know in 1929, there was a stock market crash in the beginning of the Depression at the very end of the of 1929. So mm-hmm. 1923 was really a, a beginning. And was that Dadaism? Yeah, Dada, Dadaism is that period. Um, I want to say Dadaism started maybe a decade earlier. Like I said, I'll add some links so you can know more about that. Right. And that was a piece of the, the Dadaists. I remember the, the piece um, of visual art that I actually know was the, the Dadaists, I think, just found a toilet and put it in a yeah. museum. That was actually much later, oh, okay. but yeah, but yes, that was part so that of that, was that same movement. movement. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. And it was the idea of putting real everyday objects and putting them in a museum. Pass, yeah, saying, passing them off as art. Does this make this yeah. an art piece? And that is, was what they were asking the audience. Yeah, is yeah. it art if it's in a location where people go to look at art? Right. That's a question we're asking today, isn't it? What rephrase the question? Is it art if it's in a location where people go to look at art? Oh, or is I, it theater? Because now we're seeing in the theater world, theater performed all over the place. Right. There was an opera I talked about last year in L.A. that was performed in a series of cabs. Yeah. So right. is that opera or something else? Is it performance art? And does it even matter? Well, the thing is, when you start really, really, really thinking about it, you get to the place where um, you get to that existential place where ultimately nothing really does matter and art is just as fake as everything else. And so... It, <laughs> and that's something you're it's dealing just with a matter of perspective. Yeah. I'm looking at a dog right now, and then someone could point to that dog and say, this is my art piece, and that would shift my perspective, and it would make it an art piece. Well, tell me more about that, because you are actually working on a new play with this, uh, the Cadence Theater Fellowship, working with um, David Abair. Mm-hmm. David Lindsay Abair. Sorry, David Lindsay Abair. <laughs> sorry, David. Um, and the play you're working on deals with the illusion Mm-hmm. of performance. Yeah. Well, yes, it's... Um, and the illusion of, <clears throat> of, of gender? Yeah, the illusion of gender, I think, more so than performance at this point. Um, yeah, right. It, 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 uh, well, because I've got... Uh, we're currently living in a fascinating era of um, how we view gender and sexuality because it is, it is no longer simply gay and straight. Because for a long time, it was just like, there are gay people and the world has to get used to it. And that took a very long time for America, at least, uh, to, I think, get used to, which it largely has at this point. But it's, it's caused, and because of the internet where everyone does have a voice, it's caused all these fascinating discussions about what is gender and what is sexuality. And people get very defensive about it, especially in this time when everything is politicized. So Do you think that's part of what's pushing this? Or is oh, that just sure. an offshoot of it? For sure. Yeah, because I... Um, as a, you know, I'm a cisgender white gay man, so I'm not super duper oppressed, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I am, uh, you know, sort of involved with the gay community. And um, it's frustrating to me to see all the, the yelling and arguing and blaming because there's a lot of it. And I believe the focus should be on education. And I, I'm of the mind that all that stuff is serious and human rights are serious and there is violence that is committed. But ultimately, I think it's healthiest and best for everyone to take the whole thing uh, less seriously. And so I've got this idea about drag queens and magicians and the... Um, and, and uh, a transgender magician as well, and the idea of gender being performative. Ooh, okay, that's that is juicy. 
Mm. Right. Because when you start saying gender is performative, where do you stop? Is exactly. being human performative? Yes, it is 100%. I think so. Well, yeah. And that's, I think that might be another point I'm, I would like to get to. So like that kind of feeds into that. We, we watch uh, RuPaul's Drag Race right. together. And that kind of feeds into RuPaul's statement that mm-hmm. uh, we're born naked and the rest is the drag. Rest is, absolutely. Yeah. So like regardless of who you are and how conservative you are or liberal... It's all a show. Yeah, well, I opened the show with that monologue about how, you know, no matter how much money you have or how little opportunities you have or whatever, you've, you've shat yourself. You have at one point in your life, you shat yourself. And um, you felt like a, an animal, which you are. And I think that might be closer to the truth than most of your time alive is. I think when you shit yourself, <laughs> <laughs> it just reminds you. If you're on a stairwell, you shit yourself and you remember, I'm a filthy ape. Um <laughs> Um, a this must be why we're in such a hurry to potty train children, yeah, so we right. don't have to acknowledge that right, anymore. Exactly, and yeah, so so everything is performative, and when you strip yourself down to your barest assets, you're really not. I don't think you're anything that could be even described as a personality, and that is difficult to talk to people about because it. I think it is threatening to them. Would you say personality is constructed? Yes, absolutely. From yeah. what point? Uh, I don't know. Well, we did Landmark, and they talk about that straitjacket thing where you, they have these general ages for, like, when you're this age, you come up with a main part of your personality. When you go to college for the first time, you come up with another one, and then there's another one that's supposed to happen in high school. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know when that all happens. But I do know that there is a point in your life when you try something on when you're young or in middle school or whatever, or in college. I mean, those are the times you would try new personality traits on. And it feels good, and you like it, and so you keep wearing it. Do you think? But people sh- forget that it's an item of clothing. It is not you. Oh, that's true. Do you think people should just be encouraged to continue to try out new? Yeah, if you want, or just relax about the fact that it is fake, because it, it is. Everything is fake, and that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. That's the part that people struggle with. Yes. If you tell them this is, this is not real. This is yes. a, a story that you're telling. Right. About yourself. And people start to get a little freaked out. And that's what theater can do. That I love about theater. Mm-hmm. That, it's that uh, suspension of disbelief in that hour and a half, two hours, three hours that right. you're sitting in a dark theater. If you allow yourself to suspend your disbelief, that is, believe in, in this story for this period of time that these people are those people and you're peeking into their lives, yeah. then that's that can be transformative if you allow it. Right. But... If you sit there and go, well, this is dumb, and I'm in the theater, and these are actors, and look how sweaty they are, or whatever. Right. Then, but then I'm, I'm the kind of person who goes outside, and I see, you know, men in suits and people in these giant metal bugs on highways screaming at each other, and that is equally absurd. It is. It's another kind it's of all play, absurd. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but they don't know it's a play. No, of course not. But they if you can know. if you can get that perspective, it's just easier to live your life, you know? It is. I, it's easier if to live. If you play improv with the audience, if, if, if you yes and with the universe, then it will yes and back to you. Yeah. And it does make life a little easier to bear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find, I find that um, theater, improv especially, yeah. has opened me up to the idea that I can direct the play that is my life. Right. Right. Well, and there's actors like Meryl Streep, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Nicole Kidman, who um, <clears throat> I think are really plugged into that mm-hmm. because uh, I think t- great acting really is a lot simpler than people think it is. Okay. Not to say you shouldn't do your homework if you're an actor. You absolutely should do hours and hours and hours of prep work. But when you're <laughs> actually doing it, um, I really think it, it 
there's a mental block people have about becoming someone else, but I think those kinds of actors um, who can slip into it so easily really kind of get how life works. Yeah. Because yeah. they are already doing that every day. I'm doing every day waking up, I'm doing Meryl Streep level acting. Yeah. When I just go about my life because I am acting and it's, it, I think the impulse when you realize that is to try and fix it and be more quote unquote genuine, but, um, no such thing. Yeah. Well, it's why, you know, I directed children's theater for years and it's one of the things that I noticed is so many kids are so much more natural. It's actually pre puberty. I think is you know, pre fifth grade is when pre shame. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Right. Um, are so free with their self-expression and it makes them very easy to work with on stage. Now getting the memorized stuff, you know, that's, that's hard, whether you're adult or child, but honestly, there was a lot more ease in getting them to release that fear and just do whatever felt natural. Yeah. That was cool. Mimesis. What's it? Mimesis. What's that? Mimesis. Uh, you guys are getting all my theater history lessons. Mimesis is the, uh, the term for essentially playing pretend, but it is a natural human thing that is observable in everyone, and children do it. All children do it in all nations, regardless of how underdeveloped, if they've never been in contact with another civilization, it is a natural human thing that all children do is play pretend. They, don't, they aren't taught. No one teaches them to do that. It is a human instinct. And, you know, as we grow up, we more and more walls up. Um, and we don't, we, and we don't we, acknowledge that we're pretending anymore. Even though that instinct is still there. The instinct from mimesis is still there. And so theater is a natural extension of mimesis um, that we can still access uh, anytime we want to. But, but that's, the, you know, that's an argument for, for theater and acting and, you know, make-believe is that it is an evolutionary trait. Yeah, it's absolutely just, yeah. necessary. Yeah, necessary. Oh, I totally, totally buy that. Well, let's switch topics real briefly. Okay. <laughs> because you are a playwright. You're not making a living off of it yet. Right. But that, that day is getting closer all the time. Mm -hmm. What do you think if someone in an educational setting, say a student, is looking to perform a segment of your work for an audition or for a festival? How do you feel about that? Because there are playwrights who make their living off of it yeah. who who just say absolutely not to any request. Right. Well, as a um, playwright, it, if anyone thought enough of me to plagiarize me would be incredibly flattered. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think even if I was, if I did go on to make a living doing it and become very successful, I don't think I would care if it was an educational setting. I'm talking plagiarism and copyright here. Mm -hmm. So um, what like we're talking about cutting. now is doing a cutting is, right. is not plagiarism because you do give attribution. It is a copyright issue. Right. Well, okay, so if it was a professional company doing it and trying to cut my script, I would ideally like to see the cuts and see what they're doing and then give my yes or no. Because there are little lines that don't seem maybe like they matter to a person reading it, but might actually, for the playwright, be very important. And you just have no real way of knowing because there's so much more play in the playwright's head than is on the script. Um, and they know all the secrets and things. Mm -hmm. But if it's for an educational purpose, I just don't think I would care that much because I've done it. And high school theater was very, very important to my development as an artist. And if I didn't have such a good theater department in high school, I probably wouldn't be doing this right now because uh, I got so much support. And you have to do one act and you've got to cut a play down to 45 minutes. And there are no plays that are 45 minutes long. 
Yeah. And that's a requirement. That's a policy of the... Right. It's a policy of the competition. Yeah. And so I, I don't think I would care, even though there would be a compromise. Because if you have to cut it for 45 minutes, I can I can see that putting my teeth on edge and bothering me. But I don't have to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't care. So, right, yeah. And you don't and have a paying audience for those exactly. kinds of performances. And frankly, actually, I think it, it, it could be even better for you because you have an audience of high school kids from across the state probably a good three quarters of who will have nothing to do with theater once they graduate. And so when else are you going to have a captive audience like that to, right. to convince someone to see more of your work? Right. Who grow into theater goers, you hope. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think I was exposed to David Lindsay Abair first doing one act and yeah. now I'm working for him. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So. How is he? Oh, he's just a perfectly affable middle-aged white guy. Is he good to work with? Yeah, he is. Very funny, very open. Yeah, I mean, he's very supportive of my weird, weird idea. And he's very smart. Yeah. And he's very good about structure. Oh, and that's totally helpful. I'm probably thinking about it too much. You would never do that, though. That seems <laughs> unusual for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Plots are hard. I can do characters and I can do setting. And I can do dialogue. Plots are hard. Has the process for you been... It's different. This is, I mean, this is different from anything I've ever done because the, it's uh, nine months and there are certain deadlines for things. And so I'm taking, you know, two months to write 10, 20, 30 pages. And normally I, I just get hit with something and I spend one month feverishly churning out, you know, the first draft and then I work on the next ones. But this is a very slow and deliberate. It is giving me a lot more time to doubt myself, but it is also giving me a lot more time to think. You think you'll adapt some of these techniques that you're using now in terms of timing to your future playwriting? Oh, well, for sure. I mean, he's teaching us the hero's journey, which is something that can be applied to all stories. So I don't, I don't think it'll ever leave my head again. I'm always looking for the symbolic death in the middle of the script when I'm watching movies now. It's interesting and it's difficult. And I'm not in a place where I have a lot of actors because I'm coming up to the end of Act 1, which is usually when I get a group of people together to hear it. But I just don't have those resources right now. So it's just different. Hey, what have you learned about plagiarism since you've become... Or an author yourself? Not a thing. Really? Not a damn thing. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I know. Any I know. Feels about plagiarism. I know next to nothing about copyright law or publishing or anything. They don't teach us that. No matter how many times we ask about it. Yeah, what about it. what about people who take a public domain work and claim it as their own? Give an example of that. Somebody takes an essay from 1923 and slaps it up there and puts their name on it, which now is legal with works from 1923 and earlier. Well, I mean, you know, if they're going to get booked for another gig, that person's going to be disappointed. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I just don't think that's a sustainable way to make a living doing what you're doing. Fair. Fair. (laughs) Um, But if you're talented enough to take uh, old works and chop them up and mix them around and put them in a blender and do all that, that's great. I mean, that's what art is, is stealing. I know people say, well... It's all derivative, and derivative is bad, and you should do something wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah, Shakespeare. Everything, everything Shakespeare to... wrote was based on a different thing. Oh, yeah. And he's canonically the best writer of the English language. Everyone says it. Right. So get over it, Judy. <laughs> Judy is one of my favorite listeners. You nice to her. <laughs> Sorry, Judy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, people do get worked up about it. Uh, I think people are writing, too, when they want to steal a thing. Like, I remember I was... I'm, Still, maybe sort of halfway, working on a play about Typhoid Mary, and uh, I get real antsy about historical accuracy and all that. And I remember my friend Elizabeth um, gave me an invisible president present and said, uh, "This is artistic license. Here you go." Oh, that was um, nice. Yeah, right. Yeah. So Did you not have it before then? 
I guess I didn't. <laughs> I'm so scared. Uh, I'm like you, though. I yeah. don't want people to walk out of the theater going, well, that was bullshit. Right, right, know? right. But if you, you know, if it's there, if it's legal, take it, use it. I mean, you're either stealing from your life or you're stealing from art, and art is in your life. So, Got any advice for young writers? Uh, meditate. Or old writers? Meditate. Meditate. That's it. Yeah. That's for everyone. Everyone meditate. I second that. Absolutely. <laughs> meditate a little bit every day. It doesn't have to be for a long time. Yeah. Give yourself... 10, 20 minutes of escape. First of all, if you're a writer, you probably have a bunch of stuff going on in your head all the time, and so meditation is good for you, so you won't have a breakdown later in life. But also, you're going to hear a lot of advice from a lot of different writers, and a lot of it is not going to resonate with you, and that is okay. Yeah. Boy. I you're preaching to the choir. I have been told by so many people, um, you know, what can I do to be a better writer? And they say, write every day, write every day. And that's good, and that's important, but I got so anxious about it that I wasn't doing it yeah and I don't write every day but some days I write for four hours and so you know if you just trust yourself you are the only primary resource you have if that makes sense you can't be in anyone's head but your own you know how the machinery works and you know what works for you don't feel guilty about it just be honest about it and make it work so we started this whole conversation talking about works that are entering the public domain Mm -hmm. from 1923 and um, you saw a few things on there, I think. Mrs. Dalloway was on there. It's the, the short story of the movie The Hours. That's based on Yeah. The Adding Machine, St. Joan, I believe, by Oh, George. yeah, George Bernard Shaw. Bernard Shaw. George Bernard or George um, Bernard? If you're British, it's Bernard. Yeah, but isn't he Fact. Irish? That's a very good point. I don't know. Jim Johnson said it was Bernard, and he's the accent guy, so I trust him. Okay, well, there he uh, is. Thank you to Jim Johnson at <laughs> University of Houston. Jim, if you're listening to this, stop following me. Okay. And there's, while well, I was looking at the list, and there's just a bunch of stuff on there that I also just had no idea what it was. Um, so go look at it, because that probably the reason we don't know is because people haven't been able to touch it for almost 100 years. Right. Um, so go look at it, because there could be something really cool in there that people have forgotten about. And so <laughs> if you do use it, they won't know. <laughs> I am going to take a stand here for attribution. Yeah. Yeah, well, yes. Because you can actually present the work and slap your name on it. Always include in the program some program notes about where the work came from because then people who see it might be interested in delving a little deeper. You know, deep dive is a big deal now and I think that's great because we can. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to steal little chunks, you can probably get away with it. If you're going to steal big chunks, just be open about it because we live in the postmodern era so you can do whatever you want. Right. As long as it's from 1923 or earlier. And by the way, there's some little bobble with the law around 1973 and then another one in 1998. So I am not totally clear on all copyright law, but you will have links to deep dives so you can go look at the information, do your research and get back with us. Okay, go check it out and I'll give you links so that you can look at internet archives or whatever. But really, honestly, you can Google it and find the archives yourself. And interestingly, like I said, Google wasn't even invented until the year that work stopped being disseminated. So, oh, the, yeah, well, and if you just look at the, all the old stuff too, every, I think almost everything Henrik Ibsen has written is in public domain. Public domain. George Bernard Shaw in there. 
and just take a look. There might be something that you know or something that you don't know that you can do more research on that will then inspire you. And yeah, and a lot of works that have been out of print or unavailable, yeah. you can just go online and read them, download them to your Kindle for free. I just think it's a great time to be an artist. Right. Really, I mean, some really of them, cool. some modern masterpieces like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead are just riffs on old pieces like Hamlet. The cool thing about living right now as an artist yeah. is not only do we have the digital bookshelves, I mean, there, there's just so much out there, too much really is gets yeah. overwhelming, but we're living in a time when having access to things digitally converges with this first time big brain dump of works from a previous era. Right. And that, that's never happened before. Yeah. I don't think people recognize how truly exciting a time so this is. Postmodernism and the, the information age and the technological revolution, there's never been a time before when you could write something that is has elements of symbolism, Dadaism, surrealism, and realism, and people can say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> any other time, any other time, in, like in France in the 1700s, they would have arrested you if you did that. That's true. And like, you broke the theater rules, and now you're going to theater jail. But you can do whatever you want now. It's very exciting. It is very exciting. Thanks for joining me. Of course. That was fun. Yay. Yay. Okay, I'll bring him back, I promise. <laughs> It's now time for concise advice from the interview. I have five bits of advice about using public domain work. Number five, do give attribution when you use someone else's work. It's not a requirement, but it's important to recognize the work of other artists, especially if it inspires you. Number four, Develop a sense of context for the work you're modifying. Find out something about the history and culture of the originating artists to give depth to your work. Number three, dig around in the available digital archives and learn more about public domain works. It's creative, it's fun, and it's educational. Number two, Learn more about copyright law. As an artist, it's up to you to know the difference between plagiarism and responsible evolution of artistic work. And my number one piece of advice concerning copyright law and plagiarism. Don't just crib work. Use the public domain to inspire all new original works of theater, music, and dance. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out my blog, sallypal.com, for articles and podcast episodes. You, too, can be a Sally Pal. Thank you for following, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. Now I have one bit of wisdom from my son, Will, the funnest guy on the planet. Bam. Will. What's your wisdom for today? Hey, if you got a beard and you got someone you kiss a lot, condition that beard. Nobody wants to kiss your gross steel wool face. Well said, Will. Excellent advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or commenting and reviewing like my sister does, let me know you're out there. Storytelling through performance is the most important thing we do as a culture. That's why I encourage you to share your stories, because you're the only one with your particular point of view. And Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of storytellers. All the stories ever expressed once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, 
Go pretend. You'll have total and free access. What is that? Is that neat?